a listener production. One of the things that scares people about climate change is that it all looks really hard to fix. There's so many things to consider over here. There are cars burning petrol. Over there, out to sea, there are ships burning the dirtiest of marine fuels up in the skies. Jet aircraft burning kerosene down on the ground. A giant coal-fired electricity generation station producing a significant percentage of all of the carbon pollution on the planet. And then there's the animals we raise for food. We will cover them in detail in our next episode. But for now, it's enough to note that they create a lot of carbon dioxide pollution just to feed us. And this is why in this Sustain miniseries, we've broken it down into separate episodes, each are focusing on one of these primary contributors to global emissions, because they're all important. And when you put them together, well, they almost start to look too big, too much for anyone, too much for any one country. But... What if we're just thinking about the whole problem wrong? What if the solution has been in front of us all along and we just haven't seen it? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds will be the most important in human history as we make a series of decisions that shape our future and the future of the planet. In this special series, we're taking a look at the nature of the problem before us. How can we make the transition to sustainability? We're looking at three key areas we need to work through, transport, electricity generation, and agriculture. And at the midway point of this mini-series, it's time to step back, to take a breath and radically reimagine the possibilities for massive fundamental change. It's easier than you think. And we'll explain how on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. 185 years ago, the Australian Gas and Light Company, you know them today as AGL, they got going in Sydney. AGL wanted to light all of the fine houses being built there using gas. Now, this is not something we do anymore. Gaslighting is not particularly healthy. It produces particulate smoke. It needs to be used in well-ventilated rooms. And, oh, yes, it can explode because gas explodes. If there's a house fire or an earthquake or some other disaster. Now, gaslighting was a huge advance over candles and oil, But we didn't stick with it, not once we had electricity. But that doesn't mean the gas went away completely. Many people prefer gas stoves for cooking. Many folks have gas heaters in their homes or gas water heaters or gas-fired clothes dryers. Even today, two centuries after AGL got going, half of Australia's homes use gas. But do they really need to? There's a lot of infrastructure associated with gas, a whole set of refining and delivery distribution plants, which then pipe it under pressure into homes and businesses. And if any of that breaks, you need to repair it immediately, lest something explode. So it's not cheap. 
And yet, everything we do with gas, we can pretty much do just as well with electricity. Heating, drying, hot water, it all works. Now, people might quibble about cooking with gas versus cooking with electricity, and I count myself among those folks, but really, it's just a matter of taste. There's nothing fundamental. And then there's our vehicles. Now, back 100, 110 years ago, it wasn't actually clear how we would power our vehicles. Would we use steam? There are plenty of examples of that, a smaller version of the steam engines we use to drive locomotives. Would we use electricity? Well, there were certainly plenty of electric cars produced back then. Or would we use petrol? Well, as we know in the end, petrol won out. But again, there was a huge infrastructure investment, and not just in internal combustion engines, but in all the drilling and pumping and refining and distribution down to your local servo. It's absolutely massive. It's absolutely global. And yet, everything we do with petrol and diesel and jet fuel, well, we can pretty much do all of that with electricity. Now, People will quibble about whether we will ever really use electricity for aircraft. Now, Joby Aviation, as you heard about in episode two of this miniseries, they are pointing to what that world looks like. But it remains a fair point for now. But with cars, no, not at all. Electric cars simply work better. They're less complex. They're easier to manufacture. They last longer. And if they do sometimes catch fire, well, let's be clear, so do petrol cars. And they do that all the time, which is why we kind of don't notice when a petrol-powered car explodes. So once again, let me ask, why do we spend all of that time and money on petrol and petrol infrastructure when we could do it all or almost all of it with electricity? And this, as it turns out, is the question we didn't know we should be asking. And it's the question that has been obsessing inventor Saul Griffith. I have a very curious hobby bordering on an obsession, which is uh, energy data. It's an absolute dinner party killer. And I'd spent years studying what we know and why we think we know it about it energy data, mostly in the US, because they started collecting energy data first as part of their response to the original oil crisis in the 70s. I eventually convinced the Department of Energy to actually sponsor that hobby in energy data, and I did a study with them on all uses of energy in the American economy down to about 0.1%. So I can literally tell you how much energy is used in abattoirs, uh, how much energy is used driving to church how much energy is used in the school bus fleet of North America, how much energy it takes to ship coal from where it's mined to where it's burnt or to get natural gas from where it's drilled to where it's burned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we know how the big flows of energy in the Earth's system works, how much fossil fuels are in the ground, how much energy is in the wind, how much solar hits the Earth, how much solar is absorbed by plants. With that high-level knowledge, you can start to very quickly realize that there won't be an alternative to fossil fuels that looks like fossil fuels to power everything. If we keep doing what we've been doing in the way we've been doing it, we really don't get any closer to solving our biggest problems with carbon emissions. Curiously, we've had a 50-year narrative 
that started in the oil crisis of the 70s because that was the supply side crisis. There's an, an oil embargo. We're missing 20% of our energy or 15% of our energy. How do we, because the Arabs aren't exporting it to us, how do we replace that? And the, and the idea at the time was, well, you just if you make every car 15% more efficient, if you make every home heating system 15% more efficient, then we win. You solve the problem. But you can't efficiency your way out of this new energy problem we have, which is the carbon dioxide problem. You've got to transform, and that's how you get to electrification. You have to literally electrify nearly everything. Electrify everything. Everything. Not just a few things, not just the new things. Everything. It all sounds a bit too easy, doesn't it? But there's a hidden win. It turns out that electrification is the efficiency we were always looking for. (laughs) Saul's basic insight is that we expend so much energy in bringing these different sources of energy to us, whether that's gas or petrol or coal-fired electricity. As soon as you take them out of the picture, well, that picture gets a lot simpler and a lot more efficient. How much more efficient? Well, Let's take the average Australian home as an example. It's pretty simple. Two electric cars, electrify your heat. That should be done with a heat pump. Electrify your hot water. That'll be done with a heat pump. Electrify your kitchen, induction or assistance cooking. And then there's a small number of natural gas clothes dryers in the country that should be replaced with heat pumps. It's curiously similar set of decisions in small businesses where it's the vehicles that the small business owns. It's how the buildings are heated. This is not light industry. This is more, you know, retail and offices. Again, same thing, electrifying the heat for the water, electrify the heat for the space, electrify the vehicles. With those decisions, we lower enormously the amount of energy by over 50%, by closer to 60%, and we eliminate all of the carbon emissions. That's right. If we simply move to electricity as the only source of energy in our households, we reduce the amount of energy needed when you factor in all of the energy needed to bring the energy to us, plus how much we use. Well, when you add all of that up, you cut a home's energy use in half and completely remove the carbon footprint for any of it, provided, of course, that all of that energy is generated with renewables. And that's an important point, because when we electrify everything, and remember, everything is the key point here, when we electrify everything, we need a lot more electricity. If we electrify everything, we're going to need to roughly triple the amount of electricity in total because instead of petrol and diesel, it'll be electricity. Instead of natural gas or heating, it'll be electricity. Three times as much electricity. Now, that would be a big problem if it meant that we had to build a whole new range of coal-fired generation stations or even keep the existing generators going long enough to satisfy the increased demand. We'd be gaining carbon efficiency in one direction only to lose it in another. Fortunately, Australia is the luckiest country on Earth when it comes to renewables. At least, that's what Saul believes after crunching the numbers. If you were trying to choose the one country in the world that was most blessed and most lucky and had the easiest slam dunk of an opportunity to win the climate race, it's Australia. The economics work first year. We have the mildest climate in the world. We have the most spectacular wind and solar resources anywhere. We have giant rooftops in the suburbs for putting giant solar installations in. Honestly, Australia's ambition should be to show the world how to do it and do it first and fastest because 
the economics are the most attractive here first in every one of these categories that we just mentioned. When I give this talk in the United States, realistically, it's about 2025, 2026, 2027, when the economics start to work out for the household. You sort of have to borrow a bit of money before then. In Australia, that looks like starting for some households in 2022, but by 2024, 2025, because the battery prices are dropping precipitously, electric vehicles are getting to cost parity with gasoline vehicles. And best of all, it means Australian families won't be paying a tax to save the planet. Electrifying everything will actually end up saving Australians money, both now and more in the long term. Today, the average Australian household spends a little over $5,000 a year, all told, for its electricity, for its natural gas, for its petrol, for its diesel, for a little bit of LPG, for the barbecue, this and that. If we electrify all of those things with this recipe at the costs that everyone's sort of forecasting for around 2023, 2024, you start saving about $1,000 a year. By the end of this decade, 2030, the average Australian household would be saving $6,000 a year. Then you say, how do you save $6,000 a year when you start with 5000 That's actually because the cars themselves get cheaper than the internal combustion engine. So you even save on the upfront capital price. And that's pretty extraordinary. Now, electrifying everything, it's going to be expensive. There is no question about that. It means replacing a lot of existing infrastructure and upgrading a lot of the rest of our infrastructure. Electrifying everything means doing things differently. Now, is that a problem or is it another huge opportunity? Saul reckons that the energy companies, the very same companies who earn trillions of dollars drilling and pumping and refining and distributing fossil fuels, they could be leading the way here. It's not insane for us to consider this type of arrangement where these energy companies are very, very experienced about building infrastructure, about managing workforces that are highly skilled in doing tasks. And the difference between the tasks of the fossil fuel industry in this electrified world aren't enormously different. And it's not crazy to imagine that we help some of the, the fossil fuel companies transition into the new energy economy and transferring that capital that they think they own in proven reserves into capital that they can put to work in the new energy economy. So rather than setting this up as a fight between the energy incumbents and this radically new electrified economy, why not co-opt those very same incumbents? Task them with the massive infrastructure build-out required to electrify everything. And then let them take their share of the profits. If that is the political price we have to pay to make this happen, I think that price is worth it. Electrify everything. Save the planet and make the energy companies even richer. This plan has everything, and maybe, just maybe, we can find a way to make it work. In a moment, I'll be joined by co-host Sally Dominguez as she gives us a tour of some of the upcoming storage technologies that become ever more important as we electrify everything. Electrifying everything means using every means available to both generate and store electricity until it's needed, wherever it's needed. Saul Griffith calls batteries bullets. 
in the war against climate catastrophe. So I touched base with co-host Sally Dominguez about new battery technologies and asked her to give it her best shot. If you turn seawater into hydrogen, you get brine. And when you have brine, yes, you can milk the brine and get some smidgen of lithium out of it. But why would you bother when you can turn the brine into sodium ion batteries? They're as efficient as lithium. They don't catch fire. It's abundant. It's not affected by temperature like lithium ion. I love sodium ion batteries, Mark. And that's where I think we need to go if the rest of the world, not just the developed world, wants to be a part of this abundant renewable energy future. Another type of battery that fascinates me because, hey, I'm an architect, structural batteries. So think about cement and the massive emissions drama that it creates. There's so much research right now around cement batteries. When you combine concrete with steel, so structural concrete, you might get low energy density, but you get huge volume. So imagine if our highway structures, if our massive buildings were working as massive batteries. And the part of this, Mark, that I find fascinating is it's a rethink of efficiency. Because if we have abundant renewable energy, we don't need massive efficiency. We just need to store it and access it. So simple. Finally, here's one that really gets you thinking, biological batteries. So I've been looking into Bayou, which is a Spanish company who are using soil, specifically moist soil, to power agricultural sensors. This means that all those little sensors using disposable batteries now can run on the very soil that they're monitoring. I think this is genius. They're essentially using the microorganisms that are digesting organic matter to power sensors. It's drip power, but again, rethink efficiency. We only need drip power. And they actually also show a house plant generating light, which is great. But for all those areas that are farmy but drought affected, I think we need to dig into terracotta. So yes, moisture in the soil, fantastic battery, but also right back from the Baghdad battery forward, we can look to terracotta and look to clay and other ways of, again, not massive efficiency, but really great massive volume storage of energy. Thanks, Sal. And thanks for reminding us that this isn't really about efficiency. I mean, efficiency is a good thing. But when we start to think about all of the ways we can be storing electricity efficiently or not so that it's there when we need it, well, that's when we start to see the world differently. That's when we start to see this whole problem differently. It's the moment that this whole problem begins to look more like a gigantic opportunity. In our next episode, we'll take a look at agriculture. Australians take pride in growing a lot of food, both for ourselves and to feed others around the world. Increasingly, farmers will need to consider how much carbon they create when growing that food. It's an area of tremendous innovation, and that's coming up on our next episode. Now, before we go, one more thing. Saul Griffith has written a book. It's titled Electrify, an Optimist's Playbook for Our Clean Energy Future. I've had a chance to read it. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And I want all of you to read it. So please drop by our webpage at nextbillionseconds.com and you'll see how you can get your own copy because it really is that good. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci. 
Producer Ed Gooden and sound production by Darcy Thompson. Big thanks to Saul Griffith and Sally Dominguez for coming on to the show. If you like this show, please hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, share it with them. For more about the topics in our show, including links to Saul Griffith's book, Electrify, and more about the various battery technologies described by Sally Dominguez, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listener.